0: Join us for our first virtual event of 2021, After Dark, Open Finance, Fact or Fantasy? Open finance is still a pretty new concept, but what opportunities and risks does it present? Find out how your business can leverage open finance as we bust some of the biggest myths about this trend at our After Dark event on the 17th of March. Stay tuned for some of the guests who'll be joining us. And register now to save your spot for free at bit.ly forward slash after dark open finance.
1: fs this is fintech insider news today we bring you Starling becomes a fintech unicorn maintains profitability and ice and m opportunity or two the future of open banking in the world and especially in the uk and africa's flutter wave banks 170 million dollars in fresh capital all this and much much more on today's show Welcome to episode 510 of FinTech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Mr. Adam Davis, 11FS's own Adam Davis. How are you doing?
0: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: Yeah, really, really good. Thanks. Um, just there's so much FinTech news, and I'm a FinTech nerd, so I'm excited to be here as much as anything.
0: Every day there's like five stories, so I store them up in my Slack channel, as in the the Slack channel that's just dedicated to me. You know, so I can just recount yeah. them later on, and it's uh, they're piling up, piling up
1: you send yourself dms that's what we all (laughs) learned here today
0: and then ignore them
1: Thank goodness Uh, we're also joined by some guests so that people don't have to listen to us go on for too long. Uh, Alex Freen, who's Head of Corporate Affairs at Starling. Uh, Alex, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, but I'm surprised that you're talking about fintech news. Aren't we going to be talking about Meghan and Harry this
1: week? (laughs) Surely that's the big news.
0: Too many people have got into trouble talking about that this week. (laughs) We definitely should avoid that.
1: (laughs) Speaking of trouble, uh, Alan Ainsworth, who's Head of Policy for Open Banking. Alan, how are you doing? I'm good, Simon. Thank you. Good to have you with us. It's been a while since we caught up, so really good to have you on the show. Thank you. All right. In fintech news, let's just jump right in. This bank you may have heard of called Starling is eyeing some M&A as it's been valued at £1.1 billion with a £272 million funding round that's 367 million dollars for our. US listeners and backers include fidelity and Qatar's sovereign wealth fund it's officially a fintech unicorn and starling said the new funds would be used to increase lending in the UK and drive an expansion into Europe and possible M a and I won't read out the story much more, Alex. Why don't you tell us all about this? First of all, congratulations.
2: Yeah, it's a, a fantastic work. We're really, really pleased, and it was doubly nice to be able to close it and announce it on International Women's Day. Two hundred seventy-two million. You failed to mention some of the uh, couple of the other investors: Railpen, uh, which manages UK pensions for UK Railways, and Millennium Management, a global investment firm. So. We've got a diversified cap table now, uh, a good slate of um, investors, which is really exciting for us. And yeah, now we're raring to go.
1: That's good. And everybody always says one of these neobanks is going to be profitable. Been profitable for a while. What's the what's the basis of that? What's what's performing well for, for Starling at the moment and what's driving growth?
2: Well, we've done a lot of lending in uh, 2020. So we've got a uh, net interest margin on that. We've got like two billion of lending, mostly through government backed lending schemes. And that's been to our small business customers. And um interchange. You know, people are still shopping. Um, but they're shopping online. So um, as our customer base grows, what we find, there's, there's two things going on up. You know, our customer numbers are going up. At the same time, existing customers are using us more. So we get the sort of double growth there.
1: And what's all this sweet talk of MA? You're going to give, this is FinTech Insider. So if there's anywhere the Insider news is going to, I'm kidding. But you know, it'd be interesting to know what the strategic priorities are.
2: Well, l- lending is a big priority for us now. We've got more than 5 billion, 5.4 billion on deposit now. And um, we've got to, you know, deploy those assets uh, um, to, you know, bring in more revenue. So there is, a, that's a big imperative for us. And we will be working hard on finding ways to do that. And that will definitely include MA activity. I think we're very open-minded about potential acquisition targets. And it could, you know, I'm not going to give you any inside track on any, any oh, targets because um, they're just double the price, but um, uh, the, the, <laughs> there's plenty of opportunity out there.
1: It, it is an exciting time for fintech. Adam, Digital banking has really had its moment in the pandemic. How much do you think that's been a factor in stalling success as you look at them?
0: It has for some, and it, and I suppose it hasn't for others. I think, you know, the, the culmination of the, well, I say the culmination of the pandemic, like it's over. But where we are now has seen, you know, even in the last few weeks, you've seen MS, their bank, closing their doors. You've seen uh, Monzo's valuation gone down at the last funding round. You've seen Atom's, actually, only today they've just released a press statement saying that they're going to do an, another funding round. And that's at, a I think, a 50% discount of when they were two years ago. So, you know, I I think under that, I suppose, environment, Starling have have massively backed the trend, which is amazing. And I think the exposure to, you know, obviously the C-bills, the government lending schemes has massively supported that. I do think, you know, from a consumer perspective, sort of away from the business side, from a consumer side, it is very easy now to open up a current account. There's a lot more current accounts being opened for a lot more niche, if you like, niche um, propositions, niche uh, ways that you want to spend your money, niche ways that you want to budget. Which means income, I guess, is being sort of sprinkled around many, many more providers. But that's fantastic for the for the neos because they run at much lower costs than everyone else. So it's kind of a catch-22. The race for profitability looks like it's been won so far by Starling, which is amazing. Which puts, you know, Alex, I'm not saying this because you're here, but puts obviously Starling in an incredible position. I think for some who don't have that exposure to the lending book and maybe aren't sort of, uh, I suppose, onboarding as many customers as, as clearly styling are. And there's, there might be question marks over the next 12 months on, you know, viability.
1: And it's a really good point, isn't it, Adam? That, uh, you know, the European market is... Pretty hard for a challenger bank. Interchange is much lower than it is in the US, so that's not a, nearly as profitable. And to get to lending on your own balance sheet, you've you've got to build a decent deposit book. And if you're the second account for somebody, not the primary account, that's always been the the killer question. Alan, what are your thoughts as as you look at this news?
3: I think it's really interesting news. I mean, I, I've got a starting account. My wife actually just opened a starting account, and the the difference there is that she's got her starting account as a first account. Mine was a second or subsequent account. And I think I was interested in what Alex was saying about more people using Starling more. And I think that's, you know, one of the big challenges for for the, the challenger banks has been to get customers using them more, getting a bigger share of the wallet, a bigger share of the payments. And so, you know, if, if I was, was one of those people in the Starling fold, I'd be encouraged by What's what Alex has been has been talking about. Mm, I
1: know it's exciting, isn't it? Because we've we've seen for a long time, I mean, Alan, you and I are veterans of working inside big banks, and there's always been lots of dormant accounts inside of a big bank. And there are lots of sort of low usage ones as well. It's not a surprise that that also happens in neobanks. So I do think neobanks and challenger banks sometimes get an unfair rap on some of that sort of stuff. They've created a new category to a certain degree. But as a customer acquisition channel, it's a pretty good place to be, especially when you've seen, I think, the um, Competition Markets Authority put out its uh, league table of net promoter scores. And no surprises, Monzo and Starling were, were sort of one and two. But that double act of having great customer experience and reaching profitability... And having low interchange rates, I think is, is pretty special given everything's going on. So, hats off to everybody in the in the team over at Starling for getting that done. Adam, I'm interested in what are the next sort of twelve to eighteen months play out like in in your head, and what is the incumbents can they take from 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 something like this and, and learn from it?
0: I think. Um I mean, it's interesting you mentioned interchange. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm working with what, three banks around the world in different continents who've all got vastly different interchange structures than we certainly have over here. And it's just so much easier to launch a bank. You know, the economics are just so much better to play with. And then you start getting into that sort of wonderful world of rewards, you know, and engagement and, and how, you know, not necessarily you pay for customers, but how you reward customers for, for ongoing usage. And I, I think in the UK, you know, that, that kind of rewarding mechanism hasn't really yet been approached or broached really by the neos because it's just so difficult to generate revenue in the first instance so i'd love to see some form of no- novel or new way that that happens especially as you're looking at customers coming out of you know the last 12 months who have you know stayed with their banks you know through this time period and the bank's been supporting them and then there's like a reward for that i guess at the end and I- i'm really lo- looking forward to-, to looking at that space and then i think you know just wider again in the industry i think it's you know it's, it's it wouldn't be a surprise if there's M&As. I think a lot of people are talking about you know potentially a, a neo buying an incumbent there's been lots of talks about you know tsb's on the market i think you could see some of that over the next 12 months it depends really how quickly we open up and how quickly people start spending in stores and and you know the longer this goes on not necessarily at rock bottom where it probably was last year but sort of a sort of near to rock bottom if you like from a payments volume perspective i think the longer that goes on the more the incumbents will feel the pressure
1: alex do you think post-pandemic everybody starts using branches again these these pesky challenger banks are going to disappear it was just a flash in the pan
2: no i think what's happened is that the pandemic has really pushed the shift it's 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 accelerated the shift to digital you know possibly by 10 years not just in banking but in everything you know i now talk to my mom and dad who are in their 90s on zoom because i can't go and see them and you know you're not going to put that back in the toothpaste tube that's out now so i I think that's i think we've made a big big leap and the pandemic has accelerated it. I think what's interesting, though, just a couple of points to pick on what Adam says, you know, the the biggest single merchants for Starling are the supermarkets. People are using their Starling accounts to do their big supermarket shops. So that's great. We think and we hope that when the uh, restrictions the lockdown restrictions lift, I think there will be a big pent up spending splurge. Uh, to a certain extent, we don't, no one really knows how long that will last and how big that's going to be. And it obviously, it's going to be distributed very unevenly because there are a lot of people who are not better off under the pandemic, who are considerably worse off and who are suffering. So we have to support them. But they're, you know, the Chancellor himself has said, you know, we, we've got excess savings. I love that expression excess savings is sitting in people's bank accounts. So, you know, we're, we're going to hope that a lot of our customers will. We'll be out there spending that. We hope they spend because that's going to get the economy going again.
1: Well, it's interesting. I saw an article earlier today that junior ices or kids' accounts are seeing uh, record numbers inflowing to them as well. And if you're going to do anything looking after your children's future... And and we have become an economy that doesn't save, uh, historically. We've lived on credit. We've lived on the credit card. But I love that point as well. Um, It's it's often said uh, in Silicon Valley that genies don't go quietly back into bottles. And, like, yeah, the toothpaste doesn't easily go back into the tube. Alan, we've got about a minute left on this one. Um, Do you think that that tipping point has happened? and what happens post pandemic.
3: I think that I think what you're all saying is is correct. I think people have migrated different parts of their lives to digital and now they're comfortable with it. They will continue to use it. I think, you know, clearly branches have a a, a role, but I don't think they've got a significant role. And certainly I, I I went to a branch for the first time in many years um during the pandemic. It was a very different experience to what it had been when I was working in a mainstream bank. But I certainly think there are some other banks that would have not have needed me to have gone into the branch for that particular activity. I won't go into the detail of it, but it was one of those activities where I just had to go in because for whatever reason, the limits weren't right online. I couldn't do it on the telephone because it would take me two hours to get through. So I went into the branch, but you know, the need to go in and speak to somebody face-to-face is reducing. And, you know, increasingly we're seeing digital channels providing face-to-face experiences too. You know, and the, the organization we used to work for has created that ability as well for themselves. So I think you're gonna see a big sea change in how people access all sorts of services as Alex was referring to, not just banking, but all sorts of other services. And I think that's good news for people. I think it's good news for the economy, because it increases productivity fundamentally, which is a good thing for the economy and in, in a lot of bad news. But I also think, you know, it's a good thing for fintech and for open banking as We migrate to that part of the conversation because the more people that are comfortable using digital, the more people that can then access open banking which is primarily
1: using digital channels. Indeed. Well, let's move right there then, because there's a um, story out this week, which is UK finance has set out the model for the future of open banking. So the competition markets authorities due to wind down the UK's open banking implementation entity and hand over responsibility for running that open banking program to the banking and finance industry in its entirety. This proposed new entity will provide a set of capabilities which meet the needs of the open banking ecosystem and help ensure its stability and resilience Um, and it said this trade body is proposing the creation of a new service company with firms paying fair and equitably if that's easier for me to say, uh, for the use of the services. UK Finance says, uh, we know it's vital that the industry works together to realise the opportunities for even greater innovation. There's a real opportunity in things like open finance and smart data as we move beyond just open banking. So Alan, can you give us the uh, kind of positions on this and, and this consultation? Where, where, where's all of this going and what are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think the first thing to emphasise is that the CMA is running this consultation. They have a proposal on their desk from UK Finance, the the, the bank's trade body. Um, And that's one proposal they have to look at. And they're clearly consulting by reference to some of the proposals and some of the constituent elements of that proposal. But but they're inviting other ideas, they're inviting comment to understand what should take forward the work of the OBIE going forward. So what, what this is about is saying... Recognising that the OBIE was set up to deliver something, which was open banking in the UK, create standards, create some infrastructure, and get it moving, it was always intended it would be a temporary vehicle. So, if you look at the way it's set up under the CMA order, it was set up to deliver and implement open banking. And I think it's really important that we get certainty as to how that work is going to continue. How are we going to ensure that we build on the foundations of the OBIE and make the most of that as we? You go from the over 3 million individual end users using it today to a much larger number in the future. But also, how do we extend what we've done in open banking to other services, whether that's open finance, including other products, or whether that's smart data, including other sectors? So there's a lot of ground to go for. And the big question is, how do we get there? What's the right approach and what's the right institution to take that forward?
1: No, it's an interesting question. And I think, Adam, it's probably worth unpacking for our global audience. Who is the open banking implementation entity and what role did they play? Because for a US audience, you don't have an equivalent to this thing. And you just know Plaid and you just know companies like that, like MX and the UK equivalents like TrueLair and Yapoli and so on that are, that are doing a lot of this stuff. You know the brands, but not necessarily the, this organisation. So is, is it worth just a little history on, on who they are and the role they played?
0: Yeah, so... It was set up at the the beginning, really, of open banking as a concept, a fair few years ago now. I'm going to plump for about 2015, 16, but Alan, you'll probably tell me it was otherwise. Um, 16, 17, uh, but you're right, you're right. Oh, there you go. I was was a few months out, and uh, essentially, a a fundamental part of the success of open banking, you've got a a representative body which has the CMA nine, who are the big banks in the UK and Europe, who have essentially paid for open banking up to this point, and certainly for the implementation entity to exist. But then you also had. Representations from the fintech community. You had representations from the consumers. You had people actually, you know, representing the end consumers' interests who sat on this body, which was really something. That body would meet, you know, you know, regular intervals. Subsections of the body would meet. There was different people from the CMA nine or for the fintechs or whoever would turn up to different types of meetings, essentially to discuss what the standards would be for implementing, you know, open banking here. And that's everything from, you know, how do we you know what's a digestible format for us to take away back into our banks or back into our fintechs to understand how we rolled this out all the way through to the actual API standards which were put in place and actually you know for, for everything that's been said about open banking it worked really really well and it's the one uh, I suppose institution structure that's been replicated around the world in different types of guises and the OBIE has done loads of work especially over the last couple of years and again you'll, you'll be able to pay testament to this uh, in educating other governments and other um, financial bodies around the world on how to do this properly. And I think, you know, it's it's been fundamental. I think it faces now an incredible challenge, in my view, anyway. How do you move from open banking to open finance and how the funding model behind it, not to, you know, start, Start screaming about the politics, but I'll go there slightly. Uh, the funding model behind it, obviously, the majority of open banking, the OBI, was paid for by the banks themselves, the CMA nine, the big banks. And obviously, if you then you know take that model and put it on open finance, which goes across, you know, in the insurance sector, particularly, you know, the investment sector, the pensions industry, um, you know, it, it's not obviously fair for the banks necessarily to bear the majority of that cost. So what happens to that funding model? And I think that's they often say follow the money, um, but that will really be. Um, uh, you know structurally a key component on how this you know f- fixes itself going forward and, and and how it takes shape
1: Alan I just wanted if any thoughts on what uh, Adam just mentioned
0: yeah that's right I mean it, interestingly I mean
3: obviously a number of the names that you mentioned are present in both the US and other markets in the UK and and the difference I think between the European approach I'll go through European versus US European approach was if you are a bank you must provide access To a regulated third-party provider. So there's a responsibility on the bank to provide that access to get that information. And then the the, the quid pro quo was that the TPP takes on a level of responsibility for doing certain things well. So looking after data, being secure, all those good things. So those organizations are regulated, but if you're regulated, you get that right of access. And in the US, it's far more market-driven. So in the US, what happens is The organisation, the third party will then go to the bank and say, I'd like to give certain organisations access and they come to an arrangement. And then those organisations then go to the end provider of a proposition to a customer and say, we've got this data, would you like to use it to create a proposition for customers? So a very market-driven approach. The big difference, though, between the UK approach and, say, the approach in the rest of Europe has been that we've had a single standard and an implementation body. So That single standard has been a requirement on those nine big banks in the UK, and the funding of the creation of that standard and other services and functions has been made by those nine organisations. In Europe, you haven't had a single mandatory standard, And you haven't had an implementation body ensuring that any sort of standard is implemented to a high degree of performance and availability and all those good things. So you haven't been, if you're a TPP in Europe, you haven't known what to get. You haven't known exactly what that API will look like. And you haven't known that there's an implementation body making sure that the banks are implementing those APIs in the right way
1: and the scourge of of everybody building in the US is certain banks just don't work or the availability just hangs and you know there there are, i mean it's a different market there's 5000 banks there's there's just completely different challenges and and i know all of the folks involved are, are working really really hard to to overcome that but as you say alan a big benefit of of having that standard is you can overcome it i just want to bring in alex very briefly i mean stalin was one of the early adopters for sort of building a marketplace how important do you think moving beyond open banking in to open finance is going to be for, for different customers?
2: I think it's really important. Starling wasn't one of the mandated nine, but we, we sort of, in using the principles, we've already seen it with our Starling marketplace. We've got insurers, we've got investors, we've got mortgage providers. It enables customers to have all of their finances in their app. You know, in the palm of their hand, you can see everything. And, you know, if you build a good user interface, you can actually not just have all the information there, but you can see it at a glance. It, the consumer benefits are without doubt. It's just a question of how the banks go about doing it. And I would just like to commend Alan for his Brilliant explanation there of the difference between the regimes on different sides of the Atlantic. That was the best description of it that I've heard so far. So good on you.
1: Anyone would think that's his job, you know. It's, <laughs> it's <kind> of... <laughs> Adam, there's also some like non-banking app use cases that have really emerged. I mean, one of the most low-key powerful use cases of open banking has just been to prove your identity with somebody who's not a bank. There's lots of these things starting to emerge. Um, just before we before we close this one out, what are your final thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, my final thoughts are is that at the moment, open banking offers a it's been wildly successful and I'm a big advocate for it. But it, it offers up a slither of data or a slither of customers data. If you look at the data that exists on a customer from, you know, sort of a, in in their digital footprint, in their digital lives. And what open finance will do is opening up you know, an enormous amount more available for third parties, available for really, you know, tailored products. And I think, you know, my, uh, I suppose my final thought is it's been great up to this point and has powered a whole heap of fintechs. I think we had a show about it the other week, specific on sort of the benefits and of open banking and what it what it's done for certain fintechs around the UK. But my word, like with, with open finance as it is at the moment, what it can do is just so much more and it will be amazing to see that happen and that those data streams open up
1: Indeed. Well, if you're listening and you want to know a little bit more, why not sign up for our After Dark event, uh, which is going to myth-bust everything to do with open finance and what it could mean for the industry going forward. So you can go to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, forward slash After Dark Open Finance. Bit.ly, After Dark Open Finance. Do check that out. And and speaking of which, we're just going to take a quick pause here while we hear from some of our wonderful, lovely sponsors. (music)
3: 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market.
1: Thank you to our lovely sponsors. Uh, Next story comes from Finextra. Passion Capital is inviting the general public to join its venture fund. So, of course, Passion Capital, the early stage venture fund behind a swathe of UK fintech startups, has opened up access through a crowdfunding platform. It's Pretty unusual that a, you'd see a VC offering this via a crowdfunding platform. Of course, um, Passion Capital, famous early investor in uh, Monzo and many, many others, and Eileen Burbage, who is one of the Passion Capital partners, was also very instrumental in the early days of the UK fintech scene, says, we are throwing our doors open to a wider range of investors. This way, their single investment will be applied across a range of world-class entrepreneurial talent rather than through a direct single company investment traditionally made through crowdfunding funding campaigns. So, yeah, Passion Capital has historically made 81 tech investments, including Monzo, GoCardless and Tide, among many, many others. Adam, what were your thoughts when you saw this?
0: I think it's great PR. I think look, but there's no doubt that Passion Capital, just because of who they are and the success on their investments to date, would have been able to, to close in the extra 350,000 that they're offering up. So, you know, it is, in, in my you know, in my opinion, it's uh, it's it's fantastic for retail investors, but I do think that there's a, a point where if if you're investing into this type of fund, you need to sort of understand, I suppose, what that means for your money and how long it's going to get locked up for. And therefore, you know, they're asking for sophisticated investors, if you like, to only apply, which makes complete sense. You know, I think it's you know it's it's a it's another way for you know, Alex, as you said, p- people with who potentially do have or have uh, amalgamated money over the last sort of 12 months to, it's another way for them to to earn money and, and, and to invest. I think it's quite nice. Like I think it's nice. I think for the retail investor it's another form of investment, but it's great PR for, for passion capital.
1: It should be said as well that there are venture funds that are publicly traded. There's Draper Spree comes to mind. I think Atomic or Atomica, and I always get those two mixed up, might be publicly traded. So as you look at this, um, Alan, do you see more just pure PR? We've seen a lot of um, fintechs use crowdfunding that's sort of a mixture of receiving investment, but also building momentum and customers and sort of buying advocacy. Is there is there a bit of that going on?
3: I think there's a mixture, as, as Adam was saying. There seems to be a mixture of of a bit of PR, a bit of trying to raise some money from from a different base of investors, but also a bit of a toe in the water in terms of doing something a bit different. And why not? Why not try something a bit different? I mean, I'm you know as a retail investor myself, I don't know whether I'd be particularly interested in this or not, but I think it's one that it does spark a bit of interest. It's got a lot of a lot of mention in media. And it's something I think a lot of people will be following to see how it goes, to see if it's something for the future or not.
2: Hmm.
1: Interesting. Alex, how important do you think it is for the retail investor to, A, have access to be able to invest in things and, B, do so responsibly? Because we've obviously seen a lot of uh, apps lately adding share prices and and stock dealing. And there's been certainly in the US, Robinhood has has been in the eye of the spotlight. Where do you think this falls in in balance as as you look at this story?
2: I think this is. I love this. I Absolutely love this story. It's got everything. You know. Um, yes, it's great PR, but it's it's bold and it's brave and it's an experiment and it might not work, but it'll break down some barriers, won't it? It'll. It, it's. It's. Let's tr- see if this works. And if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. We've seen this sort of big cultural shift in the last you know decade or so. You know, towards peer to peer crowdfunding, opening up this isn't really democratization because this this particular fund, they're aiming for high net worth individuals. So it's, it's not everyone going to get, but I love the idea that it's going to shake things up. It's a tiny, tiny amount of money. This might not be the way to do it, but it's it's the idea of it that I think yeah, is, is it's, it's it's important. It's that sort of
1: democratization of access to growth investment, which I think is really powerful. From a financial inclusion standpoint, we have to remain responsible when we're doing it. But at the same time, for a long time, the, the retail investor was told they're not sophisticated enough to benefit from growth. And actually, you know, this, this comes in to protect the retail investor, but it also locks them out of growth because uh, companies are going public much, much later after much of their growth has already happened. So, this ability to get in a little bit earlier is, is is really really powerful, Alan. I'm interested in your views in sort of the the risk side and the risk element from a consumer standpoint. You mentioned you as a retail investor might not be uh, very interested in it. Do you think that there's UK investors out there that would be interested in this? And is is crowdfunding just a niche, or or, or is this is this the beginning of something that's a trend?
3: Well, I think if you talk to to certain consumer lobby, they will be concerned about making sure people get the right advice, they don't invest in something without understanding the, the the pluses and minuses and the risks involved. And I think that's always the case with any kind of investment. But I don't think this is where this is going, to be honest. I don't think, you know, this is all, what we're referring to in terms of the risks is all about the advice regime and all about making sure people have the right information before they make a decision. I think it's absolutely right that we get to make sure that people understand the risks they're entering into etc etc so for most people this is not going to even be on their radar at all as we've discussed this is on the radar for the more sophisticated investor as indeed a lot of this sort of investment will be any type of peer-to-peer lending any type of investment has risks but as long as it's managed appropriately as long as the consumer knows what they're putting themselves in for what they're putting their money into and the risks involved in it i think this is like any other type of investment and i don't see any reason why this particular example cannot you know just, But as as we've discussed, try something different out and see how it flies.
1: Adam, it's interesting that the UK and Europe doesn't really have that angel investor community that the US has had for quite some time. It's just not as normal. I mean, it's beginning now as we're getting that second generation of company. You know, we're starting to build a tech scene 10 years on from 2010, 11 years on. In fact, I'm losing track of the uh, years. That's what a pandemic does to you. How important do you think crowdfunding is for in that context where you don't have experienced angel investors? I mean, Europe, obviously, does, but not nearly the same volume as, as you would see in the U.S.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's fundamental to some startups who have raised, there's a lot of companies on, you know, Cedars and, and wherever else, and you normally hear in the press of the ones that have raised the money and have sort of, you know, shattered their initial targets and gone well over. And it's, you know, it's there's it, a fantastic news story. But there are fintechs, there are startups who, who don't have to do a lot of marketing, who just have a really good idea and can, for relatively cheap, you know, raise capital. I, I think it's been a fundamental part of unlocking in the psyche of investors a new, a new way of doing that and, you know, to your point, democratizing the way that happens. I do think that there's, you know, I think about this example, and that maybe five years from now, what, what will this morph into? And what I like about this is that Passion Capital, you know, a highly reputable, you know, VC company, obviously, and, you know, investing in most probably quite substantial tech companies as well, or, um, you know, sort of moonshots to, to a degree. And what you might see in five years time, you know, if you continue to democratize this example, you know, are you going to see actually, you know, sort of the retail investors and you and me, not necessarily the, the sophisticated investor putting their money where they shouldn't with, you know, people who are just trying to raise a fund on the fly. And I think um, that that's where you know, sort of the good graces and good intentions of this and crowdfunding platforms is going to be tested. I think, you know, when you sort of, when I look up and down sort of the the companies on, again, Seeders, which I did quite recently, because I've just changed their interface wanted to have a look. There's all sorts of companies on there, some which, you know, you just have to take the sniff test and think, wow, that's really cool. Or some of them, you're like, whoa, Mm. (laughs) you know, I'm not sure I put my money there. And I think that level of education isn't quite there yet. It's a great medium to invest, but the education bit still needs a, a big ramp up.
1: They always say invest in what you know and and do do your own research. And I I suspect for people who work in the industry, there's a level of understanding and insight into what good looks like. So fingers crossed we see more of it. I'm going to move us to the next story. This one comes from Finextra and SoFi um, are going to buy a community lender to accelerate their bank charter application. So of course, SoFi has agreed to buy Californian community bank Golden Pacific for $22.3 million to speed up the process of getting its charter. Um, SoFi secured Additional approval from the OCC for its National Bank Charter application. However, the firm is now changing its strategy, switching its current de novo bank application to a change of control application. Regulatory nerds rejoice. If the new application is approved by the OCC and the Federal Reserve, SoFi says it will pump $750 million into its national digital business plan while maintaining Golden Pacific's community bank business and footprint, including its three physical branches. SoFi is also, of course, on the verge of going public via a SPAC deal that would value the company at nearly $9 billion, with, of course, the very famous uh, Chamath Pipitaya, um being leading that SPAC. So, Adam, this story's got everything so if I uh, just give us a little bit of the history on, on who those guys are, and and um, also they've made one or two recent acquisitions. Uh, yes,
0: yeah, so student loan financing essentially is where it started, and they've sort of, I suppose, morphed from those, those relatively humble beginnings. I'm not going to say they were completely humble to a, a full range of you know credit and, and lending capabilities. They've acquired. I mean, Galileo is probably the most famous acquisition that they've made in the last few years. I think they did it. Uh, was it? It was last year, I think. Again, to you, the, the lockdowns just yeah. It was last year. You know, that was for about $1.2 I mean, now an enormous player in both fintech infrastructure and also uh, product and, and, you know, lending at its core. This one in particular is, you're right, it really does have everything. It's got shades of Harrods Bank and Tandem, but just at a much bigger scale. You know, basically, it's a bank just coming in and buying a license. You know, I doubt that Golden Pacific probably saw this one coming on its radar until it landed. And they probably thought, my God, you know, we're the chosen ones, you know, with three Physical branches. I mean, this was, you know, it's it's a, a wonderfully cheap way for SoFi almost not to cheat the system because that's not quite right, but to play the system cleverly to, to get that bank charter, which we know is just really, really difficult in the states.
1: Yeah, Alan. I'm interested in your views here on the on the charter side of it. It it wants to have this charter to be able to accept deposits and make loans. How much do you think? Um, you know, is this like Lending Club who acquired Radius Bank? And it, what what do you think when you when you look at this story?
3: I mean, when I look at this sort of story, I have a very UK lens on it, and I I look at it and I think, are there any parallels in the UK? I can't see an obvious parallel. I mean, I think what's interesting is is seeing somebody that started off in the social side and then moving into the commercial side. And I do think in the UK, we have a social side of of banking and credit unions in particular, which I think, you know, when you look at how they're run, how they're organised in the UK, I think there's a lot that they can go after. And I do wonder if when you look at this kind of example in the US, and they've had longer at it in terms of growing social and community banking, what is there in this kind of story, and not just this story, that maybe we can learn about in the UK? Because I'm very interested in how we solve in the UK the financial inclusion question, how we provide a physical footprint for those that still need it, when increasingly you have digital-only banks, mobile-only banks that are not doing that, and and, and the incumbent banks are increasingly reducing their footprint in terms of branches. So how do you provide a social, not necessarily profitable way to help people get credit to help people get access to cash in an environment where the commercial model has moved out of that to a great extent. And interestingly, looking over, over in, into different countries may help us in the UK with that. Indeed. Alex, what are, what are your thoughts as you look at this?
2: Well, I, I think it's a reflection, isn't it, of how difficult it is to get a banking charter in the United States. They are paying, what is it, $22 million um, for Golden Pacific. That's probably what Saved them a few million on consultants. It, it seems like a very straightforward and impressive deal to me. I, I, I mean, if if
0: I remember, what Vero Money got the first. It was the first digital bank to get the charter. It was not indeed. so long ago, and they spent. I'm, go, I'm I'm. I might be lying here, but I, or, mm-hmm. or uh, just uninformed. But I think it was about hundred million they spent on getting that over the course of you know x amount of years. So this is a a steal an absolute steal.
1: Of course, it doesn't guarantee you will get to keep that charter if you buy True. a bank. But, yeah. but it's interesting to me that SoFi in its SPAC documents was talking about, um, and they, with the SPAC, they have a limited time window in which to go public. They have to try and achieve as much with that capital in a short space of time before they go public. And they're one of the only ones that's bought their own in-house payments processor with Galileo. Now, Galileo supports some of the biggest names out there in terms of its payments processing, but as part of that banking as a service movement. So SoFi in its SPAC documents talks about it wants to be a direct sort of consumer bank and, and full sort of suite of services, so deposits and lending across all of that. And it also wants to help enable other folks with its embedded finance and its headless bank kind of offerings, which possibly the only other folks that you really see in the market that have that strategy are are Marcus by Goldman, who talk about in their annual reports, they talk about three areas. They do the kind of direct through Marcus, they do partnerships through Apple and Amazon and others, and then they're doing API first and embedded. And I'm interested, Adam, just before we close out on this one, do you think we're going to see more folks intentionally playing that strategy? Because historically it was my brand or it was co-brand, and actually now there's a lot more nuance starting to come in.
0: Yeah, I think there's, you know, as as technology evolves, uh, as we've seen, and and more... Uh, infrastructure providers are happy to remain as infrastructure providers, but just provide world-class services. So you get a lot more niches and you can, you know, you can create customer experiences that prior to this were Im- impossible to create because it would be too expensive to create them. And, you know, it means it just opens up, if you like, the ability to partner with many, many different partners without having to lock, you know, without vendor lock-in over multiple years. And, you know, we talked about open banking, that's a key technology in doing that. And, and open finance will be going down the line in, you know, five, 10 years years and the embedded finance movement essentially is just built on fantastically technically procured products which have collaboration almost at its center because you know it's products built specifically for one niche in the tech stack you know their go-to-market is come and work with us not we're going to come and sell you what we've got if that makes sense
1: yeah here's the apis have a play Get used to it in the sandbox. And that changes the economics as well, because there's a way banks have priced transactional stuff historically in order to get the cross sell business. And there's a way that Stripe would price for something, that Galileo would price for something, because they can add a lot more value to a different business. And that, I think, is really the emerging conversation of of where these things are going to start to go. So it's going to be interesting to see this new battlefield play out as people are actually playing 4D chess. They're not just competing for the customer with their own brand, but they're also competing for the B2B customer in a completely different way. And then let's look somewhere else in the world. Um, Story from from Finextra: Africa's Flutterwave has raised more than $170 million in fresh capital. So they are, of course, a payments technology processor, and the group of investors have completed their Series C. The total investment to date is $225 million and values the company over a billion dollars, making another unicorn this week and another African fintech unicorn. of course. The company helps merchants accept payments both online and point of sale through a host of methods including cards, mobile money and bank transfers. And the CEO says when Flutterwave was founded in 2016, the payments landscape in Africa was so highly fragmented, the goal was to build a Pan-African platform that simplified payments for everybody. We look forward to deepening our impact as the platform changes people's lives and livelihood as we take on more businesses and we take these businesses from Africa to the world and more of the world to Africa. Adam, there's some pretty big numbers here. Flutterwave has done pretty well.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm always amazed whenever, I mean, I worked in Africa a couple of years ago on a pan-African banking solution. It was more around trade finance, but I just got got sort of first-hand experience of how difficult it is to build a proposition pan-Africa, which is why, you know, historically up to this point, you know, a lot of the banking infrastructure has been off the back of telcos because they've been the first ones to sort of lay the foundations from an infrastructure perspective across the continent. The opportunity there is enormous. I mean, their biggest, you know, whenever you talk about payments or you talk about even just financial transactions in Africa, the biggest competitor is cash. And arguably, in some countries, it's the black market. And in order to get, you know, this kind of proposition up and running, pan-Africa regulated, you need, you know, the central banks to to back you. And, you know, you need uh, an enormous amount of support from them, which is really hard to do and is, uh, you know, takes a considerable effort. So whenever, one, whenever I see a, a startup, you know, either get, you know, this kind of funding or this kind of success, I think they're across, what, 300,000 SMB, Across Africa. You know, I just think about the amount of work that went into this and just like, absolutely hats off. It's a, it's an amazing achievement.
1: Uh, thoughts, Alan? No, I, I agree
3: with what Adam has said. I think, you know, there's, there's clearly a great deal of potential in Africa. And if you can find something that works, there's a lot of difference you can make. You know, if you think about this, the potential of Africa generally is so high. If you can make payments work in Africa and you can reduce the requirement to use cash then you can really make a difference and you can increase productivity as well and improve the ability for businesses to make money in Africa as well. So, you know, if this kind of stuff does work and does make a difference, I think brilliant because I think Africa has so much opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And there's there's some pretty big competition in this space, Alex. We saw um, Paystack acquired by Stripe for 200 million. And of course, Interswitch is the only other African fintech unicorn at the moment. Is the market big enough for all of them? Are we going to see more innovation, do you think? It seems, uh, seems like lots of happenings at the moment.
2: I think it was really interesting what Flutterwaves, their CEO, has said, that he came up with this expression of the COVID beneficiary sectors and how they're going to go after them. And he mentioned streaming, gaming, remittance and e-commerce, amongst others. And I think that that tells you immediately that the market's big enough. It's, it's plenty big enough. And those numbers you just quoted, I mean, 300,000 small businesses, that's that's what we've got at Starling. We're just serving England or the U- United Kingdom, rather. So they've got a whole continent that is run on small businesses. So that the market is huge.
1: And they've got clients like Uber and Flywire and Facebook as well. So that they're very much positioned to potentially be one of the stripes for Africa. And of course, Stripe's mission statement is grow the GDP of the internet. And that point. That you make there, Alex, is is really an interesting one, which is how many people try and capture market share versus how many people try and grow markets. And Flutterwave is growing a market. And this is what always gets VCs excited, is like, what are you doing to enable this market that doesn't exist yet? And that's why that Stripe mission statement is is so classical. Adam, I know you're a big fan of Square as you look at them. They've done a little bit around online acceptance, been really strong in in physical e-commerce. Flutterwave has the potential to be too. What are the core Dynamics of that business.
0: It's playing the two-sided marketplace essentially. You have to play the marketplace between the merchants and the customer, and you've got to play it very well. And that is, uh, I mean, I've again, I've had sort of experience with merchant acquirers in the UK and and payments businesses. It's so hard to do, but it's the fundamental dynamic of having a two-sided marketplace and being able to to offer. Enough compelling propositions to both that retains their loyalty essentially uh, over time. That the hardest thing in this market in Africa, in every market, but especially in Africa, is the adoption at the point of sale. So you know when you're looking at your SMB businesses, what actual you know payments terminal, POS terminal they're using? Uh, are they using one, or are they still using cash? Conv- you know, convincing them to convert to using this sort of stuff in in, in its first instance is difficult. So it, it's market penetration, it's convincing people to use you know digital services, and it's building that to two-sided marketplace off the back. And, you know, these guys, I, we, I know we had Cuda we had on the show, oh, I can't remember when, a few months ago, the new digital bank. And I remember Babs was talking, he was the CEO, he's talking a lot about the sort of the adoption challenges that they had with, with, with a digital bank. But, you know, being the first mover in that sequence is just so, so important for growth.
1: Well, capturing market share when a market is small is much cheaper than buying back in when a market is large. And when you can only make short-term bets like a lot of incumbents can because you need in-year return, it's very hard to capture market share when markets are small because it doesn't look like a good bet in-year. And this is the fundamental of disruption that we keep seeing time and time again. And it's you know, if I was in an African bank at the moment, I would certainly be looking closely at businesses like this for, for where they are and where they're going to be. Yeah. righty. There's plenty of stories we didn't have time to cover in So we're going to take a look at them and just round a few up. Adam, do you want to start?
0: Yes, there is a bank called Cheese. And I actually, I tried to look at the uh, the reasoning behind all that.
2: Why is it called Wha- cheese? Do we know why it's called cheese?
0: So I tried to look this up as to why this bank has called itself cheese. But all I found that there was an article online around a bank in the middle of Italy that had taken Parmesan rolls, as in big rolls of cheese, as collateral for loans. That's all I could find on cheese. <laughs> uh, so not exactly what we were looking for. But cheese is a new digital bank uh, aimed at the Asian American community. They've just raised 3.6 million in funding. And the platform provided. A debit Mastercard, which is available to those with no credit history. Cardholders can be issued with a virtual card instantly, which is you know sort of now becoming almost a table stake in a lot of digital banks that are being launched through their mobile wallets. Uh, they can get paid up to two days early with a direct deposit, uh, a three percent deposit bonus for referring friends, 0.3 uh, APY, and up to 10 percent cash back on purchases. At more than 10,000 merchants. You know we talked about interchange earlier on and how much of it's a game changer for neos in the states. This is a massive advocate, uh, an example of that. In conjunction with this law, Cheese has pledged 100000 to the Cheese Give Back Fund, uh, 100% of which will be donated to non-profits and community service programs in support of Asian neighborhoods and businesses impacted by violence, economic hardship during COVID-19. What I love about this is the concept of community. We talked about community banks earlier on, and community banks really up to this point had always been a like a geographical statement. It's like there's a community bank because it's based out of X and it serves its quite close community. But this is completely, you know, it's it's re redefining what community is uh, from a banking perspective. And I think if you look at this, if you look at, uh, I think, First Boulevard, wasn't it? It was the first bank to get funding a few uh, weeks ago for black and Latino communities.
1: We had um, First Boulevard on the show last week. Oh, if, we? oh uh, God! anybody wants to check them out, do do check out the last episode of Fintech Insider News, ah. which Adam clearly listens <laughs> Yeah. To. Oh, dear. <laughs> <Adam>. oh, You've
0: <laughs> done me one there. Yeah. Thank you. And I was going to say another one of our uh, ex colleague, the great Will White, who works at um, Daylight in the States for the LGBT community. It's it's completely reimagining what communities is. And I love that. You know, it's a different type of bank. And Alan, going back to what you said before about, you know, how do you get, you know, the sort of the unbanked and, and people onto the banking ladder? Well, if it's not, you know, a community around where you live, it could be a community about who you are. And I really like that.
1: Communities aren't just where your postcode is and your zip code. It could be much, much more than that in the digital age, which is exciting. Uh, Next story. Can
2: I just, Simon, can I just butt in? I mean, what was interesting about this company was that it was founded because the founder kept being discriminated against because of his race. Um, Okay. So his credit score wasn't rubbish, but he was denied services. And he just got sick of it. And he did something about it. And to me, that just gives it another little hero status. I I wish them well.
1: No, here, here, fully support that. Thanks for for jumping in on that, Alex. And I think that founder story is always so crucial. And we saw the same with Greenwood Bank and, and First Boulevard and others as well, and Daylight as well. Similar similar problems experienced. It's people who've been there and, and now are building for for people like them who are experiencing the same thing and the economic opportunity that that hopefully unleashes. Story from Finextra: WeLab moves into the wealth tech space on an Allianz investment. So Hong Kong fintech WeLab secured 75 million dollars in funding led by the venture of Allianz X. As part of the financing, WeLab Bank intends to enter the digital wealth management and insurance market. The plan is to roll out initially to new digital customers in Hong Kong and to the Greater Bay Area through Wealth Management Connect. WeLab has raised more than $600 million of strategic financing, growing its business across Hong Kong, mainland China, and Indonesia. The company was one of the first to secure a digital banking license in Hong Kong and claims to have close to 50 million million individual users and six 100 Enterprise customers. WeLab continues to be one of those stories that's untold because they're not Ant or Tencent. Nobody really pays attention to them. But another one like Ping An where they're doing amazing things, they're building out platforms, they're securing investment and of course wealth management in the region is now a material concern and of course it's born digital first. But what does digital wealth management look like? Is it somebody with a nice suit and a nice briefcase or is is there a digital version of that? And actually uh, watching what these guys do and being inspired by that is going to be super, super useful. Adam, for the next one?
0: Yeah, this is uh, uh, two stories in one, but all around the mortgage business in the UK. So Lloyds Banker to become a private landlord uh, at the same time as Habito unveil a 40-year mortgage. To start on the Lloyds uh, story, so the Lloyds initiative, which is known as Project Generation, will involve buying and renting out new and existing housing stock across the UK, and it aims to have its first tenants by the end of this year, as well as providing direct benefits through rental yield, house price growth. The bank is hoping the move will boost its existing businesses, for example, by providing... uh, An opportunity to cross sell rental deposit loans or insurance. Habito. In the meantime, on the other side, has just launched a 40-year fixed-rate mortgage, which is just like unheard of. We had them on the show back in the old office, I think, like two years ago, and they were talking about 15 to 20 years, and they've just blown out of the water with 40. The products called Habito One uh, offer a fixed-rate uh, period between 10 and 40 years to first-time buyers, home movers, and remortgages in uh, England and Wales. I mean, for for me, uh, first of all, on the Lloyd's point, it's I, the motivation on this probably is you know historically, culturally, where Lloyd's have sat, which is has always been close to the mortgage product and just the need to you know, to generate new revenue. Uh, if anyone who's a private landlord will tell you how hard it is at the moment with all the regulatory changes, mortgage offsetting, etc. Um, but obviously, it's not going to matter to them. But I think, you know, from a reputational perspective, they will probably, th- there's probably better businesses or, or le- less exposure they can get in the press from being a, a landlord to the masses. You know, you can only imagine if something goes wrong with one of their houses or one of the housing stocks, what, what, you know, the repercussions on that on a bank, especially. But again, just a really interesting way of, you know, diversifying, revenue going forward. I think for Habito, I mean, this is so cool. So, you know, if you think about uh, a customer could effectively go 40 years without having to pay a new mortgage free every two to five years, that's really novel and new kind of kills if you like the broking business because that's basically what you know brokers are built on is the ability to sort of command those fees every two to four years and also just establishes a 40-year relationship with the customer which is like amazing you know if you think about you know from a business perspective cross-selling whatever else obviously it's an enormous amount of opportunities the thing is though just with that just last point there have been long-term mortgages in sort of post five years that have been around in the market you know for for a while the the appetite for those in the UK hasn't been that strong compared to other countries so it'll be. interesting to see what happens here with the fanfare and the media that Abito bring, maybe that we will change customer sentiments to them.
1: It's super interesting, isn't it? You had somebody that started out entirely as a digital broker. It's, it looks and feels a bit like a chatbot that helps you find the right mortgage and takes broker fee. Now gets into mortgage lending. Now gets into a different type of mortgage lending, aimed squarely at a generation of people who struggle for their deposits and have been struggling to ever figure out how they're going to own their home. You can see how it would play to that audience. So it's going to be interesting to keep watching this one. But my prediction is the whole mortgage space is getting massively disrupted. Mid market lenders, net interest margins are being squeezed beyond belief. And even at the top end, it's a harder and harder business to make money out of because we need to move from flogging mortgages and selling them to actually helping people get their home and everything that comes around with it rather than expecting people to project manage their own home move and going, here's your mortgage and here's a load of other intermediaries to deal with. All right, it's time for our and finally story The Winklevoss twins, as in those Winklevoss twins from Facebook fame and and elsewhere. Their crypto company is going to sponsor the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, which might be the most British thing we've ever done on this very twee little British podcast. So Gemini is a cryptocurrency exchange that lets people buy, sell and hold crypto that was founded by billionaire twins Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss in 2010. They were keen rowers back at Harvard and then, of course, Oxford. The pair rowed for Oxford in the 2010 boat race and represented the USA at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. After rowing, the Winklevoss brothers pivoted to a career in financial technology. And the pair used part of their Facebook settlement to buy $11 million worth of Bitcoin in 2013.
0: <laughs> Do they need to work again? Is the question.
1: <laughs> Alongside sponsoring the race, Gemini will fund a new £75,000 bursary, provide underprivileged children with lessons through the Fulham Reach Boat Club. Thoughts on this one, Alex?
2: Look, I'm not, I don't have great views on the Winkle either way, but I have a lot of time. For people who are elite athletes and who've got the determination and the grit and the guts to get to the absolute top of their sport. So, and I love that they've done something in their area of expertise and I like their bursary, although I don't know how many, you know, what demand for that bursary will be. I'm not even particularly interested in the in the boat race itself. I just am full of admiration for people who who can get climb to the top of an elite sport and, and perform at that level. So good on them. You know, if they think this will open the door to, you know, the establishment, they'll probably be a little bit disappointed. But it's a lovely thing for them to do. And the teams can now train in person. I was reading the Oxford and Cambridge. They've had to sort of train on machines, I think, um, all by themselves. So that's another good bit of news. Things are opening up. (laughs)
1: I love that fact, uh, Alan. There's some previous sponsors that look and feel a little bit different: BNY Mellon, Newton Investment Management, sort of uh, gin companies. Is this good brand awareness? Are they playing for awareness in the institutional mind?
3: Maybe they are. It, it seems to me to be a little bit more. This is, this is their history. This is a something which 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 they're very interested and passionate in, and they have got the opportunity to to get more involved. I think what 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 strikes me is is Fulham Reach Boat Club. I would imagine that if we want to get more rowers to make sure that Team GB is always up the top of, of winning Olympic medals, we need to go beyond Fulham. And I, I suggest we get to areas of Warwickshire, just down the road from me, and make sure we sponsor boat clubs around GB and not just in, in Fulham to make sure we access even more people. So I'm calling on them when they start to think about it, to think about a bursary for anybody that wants to take up rowing anywhere in the country. Nice, That'd be brilliant.
1: That would be brilliant, and I can now imagine global listeners frantically Google Mapsing <laughs> for where Warwick is, uh, which is uh, which has yeah, a lovely part of the world. All right, Adam. Just before we close out on this one, we've seen a lot of big crypto companies sponsor things. Is there like a clamour for respectability going on a little bit?
0: Well, I think the respectability for for crypto as itself is coming with the money that's being invested by big big organisations. I mean, Tesla and, and Square actually, we mentioned them before, most famously probably from in the news, but. Banks as well, you know, uh, the, the respectability will come from uh, companies like Coinbase IPOing and you know making the money more mainstream. Uh, so I think that movement's going on at a sort of a corporate institutional level. I think at this level, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a lot of credibility in a cryptocurrency, given the level of sophistication that you need and the risk, obviously, in investing, sponsoring, you know, Brighton, Albion, Cardiff City, you know, and and regular people, because it's it's hard to articulate through an advert just what the risks are of doing that. But, you know, there's a spike. So they're, they're taking advantage.
1: There's an interesting point of like the advertising has moved from the punter speculator to the investment manager. And and that's a, a moment in time, and I think that's the big trend of this crypto bull run. Is the previous one really was the punter and the speculator? Now it's it's somewhere else, and so you know, Bitcoin suddenly doesn't seem to be the evil that it was. Not every regulator is saying, "Ah, those crypto coins are bad." Yeah, they're much more concerned about Facebook and DM and and other things at the moment. And non fungible tokens selling for uh, sixty million dollars, and and DeFi wallets raising three hundred and fifty million dollars, and whatever else. I do
0: have a friend who's an investment manager and he he did call me up the other day and he asked me what would happen I don't know why he was asking me this because you should probably know but if you sold an element of Bitcoin uh, what does that do to your capital gains tax so like these kind of questions are like starting you know in in, are now in the mainstream it's not just for the elite people who have bought them you know in 2013.
1: HMRC has put out guidance on that as as has the IRS and many other parts of the world so there's actually so global digital finance did some work with global tax bodies to get to a, a similar position on it and generally it's taxed as Property with capital gains, or whatever your equivalent regime is. So, do your own homework, people. Definitely, do not invest money you cannot afford to lose, um, and and have fun out there.
2: Can I just say, I was on the a very rare uh, venture onto public transport the other day, and there's an advert in the London Underground, and it says on the poster, "If you're seeing Bitcoin on the Underground, it's time to buy."
1: I, I, you know what? I kind of, I just want to say, if you're seeing Bitcoin on the Underground. It's time to do something, but maybe it's not buy.
2: (laughs) Everything about that advert.
1: Anywho, guys, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Alex?
2: Starlingbank.com or I'm on Twitter at Freeney.
1: Alan.
0: Alan. Alan.Ainsworth at openbanking.org.uk. Adam. Adam at 11FS.com, and uh, yeah, 11FS.com itself.
1: And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, ranting in the Brain Food newsletter, or at 11FS.com myself. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. I know you dip in and dip out sometimes, but just hit that subscribe button. It's so much, much better. And leave us a review. It really, really helps us, and it helps others find the show as well. So if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Search for 11FS Authentic Insider. Or if you want to bother our producers, email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much, and bye for now.